0: very, very um, intentional, and we want to encourage you to join a small group if you don't have one. This Tuesday at 5.30, okay, Corey will be having his small group meeting in this room, Corey, in this room, and there will be free food, okay, that is a good thing, so who can tell me when Corey's small group is meeting? 5.30, 530, over here, someone gets a cookie over here, Stephen is my official cookie hander outer? My insurance said it would be a good idea to have that instead of my... Homeschool throwing ability, as Ryan so like to call it. Okay, so speaking of turkey and Thanksgiving, November twenty fourth. That's two Sundays from tonight. We will not be meeting here. We will not be meeting as a body at Revolution. However, Christ Community Center has invited us to join their turkey dinner, which will be here. If you want to purchase some tickets, they're three dollars out here on the table, um, and you could see Ryan about that if they want to do that. The bald headed wonder over here. For those of you who don't know, um. Let's see, there will be an official core group meeting that is upcoming, and who is the core group? No, it's not like the Green Lantern core for those uh, comic people. Uh, what it is, is just a group of people who have really decided to make this home, and, and for people who are invested in this ministry. Um, Ryan will have more details with that coming up. But So don't forget, small groups are coming up, and you want to see Eric, Corey, uh, David, or Ryan. Um, now, last week... Eric brought the word, and it was a good word. Now, but we learned something about Eric that he was not originally from Portsmouth. Who could tell me where Eric originally came from? How am I? Tell a coffee. Someone over here gets a free cookie. A safe version. Now, there's also a birthday today I need to get there. Who has a birthday today? Jendi Atley. Jen you are not Jendi Atley. Where is Jendi Atley? She gets a cookie and a free coupon for a Frosty. Ooh. It's one of those itty-bitty like shot glass frosties, but hey, it's a free frosty. (laughs) Eric spoke to us out of what book last week? Anybody remember what the chapter that we kind of focused on? First John? Eric, is that correct? Ah, I don't think it's correct. It was said in the front row. John what? John 15 from someone else on the leadership team that does not get a cookie. Give it on back. John 15, we talked about really investing in God's word and, and learning to take joy in that. Um, so it was a really good thing. And I hope if you guys, do we have that podcast going yet, Brian? And Stephen, pick out, if you have cookies left, just pick somebody. Really, right now, just get rid of the cookie. It's free cholesterol. You know, anybody who wants it and sugar rush. Can we, can we get those podcasts? Are they up and going? I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot there. They will be, guys. These messages are great tools for us, and, and these guys that are that are bringing the word have really invested a lot of time and thought into that. We really want to soak that in. Um, but as we as we get started tonight, it is it is Thanksgiving again, and and for me, the thing about Thanksgiving I love most is pumpkin pie. It just just tastes good, and it tastes good, and it just tastes good. So what I want to do now, we're going to take 30 seconds. I want you to stand up, meet someone you don't know. There's a lot of new people here. Shake their hand, say, hi, my name is, what my name is, and what's your favorite favorite Thanksgiving food, you know? So get up, stand up, meet somebody, and tell them what your favorite Thanksgiving food is. Mingle in right now, 30 seconds. Maybe we could have some music going, and what your favorite turkey item is. David Dowdy,
1: come on up, brother. Too, weak, too weary to try, too angry inside. Well, so am I. I'm all alone with nobody else. So we need a felt. I keep reminding myself that life is beautiful. Shower a little love with the whole wide world. Everybody
0: girl sing the song when we sing wild oh, Go ahead and start making your way back. Back to your seat. We are continuing back. David, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food item? Um, A traditional Thanksgiving. Traditional? Don't say pizza.
1: Stuffing, for sure.
0: Stuffing. Now, now, is it the cornbread stuffing or the
1: other stuff? It could be like stufers. Like I don't care. Like I just like stuffing. I like, can be like instant. I don't care. So oatmeal could be just thrown
0: in there, and you don't care. I love oatmeal. Okay. It works. Guys, we're going to get to know David a little bit. David's a part of our leadership team, and we've had a lot of changes. We've been talking about that. We're just going to take some time to get to know David. Before we do that, we have these Connect cards that are back here on the table. We would like the opportunity to get to know you a little bit as well. Um, as well. There's just some basic information, name, address, you know, maybe a place where we can send you a free cookie in the mail. I'm all about free cookies. Maybe you'll get sent one in the mail. So just take opportunity to get this so you can uh, be up to date on what's going on. But David, first, just give us some basic information. Um, Tell us your name, where you're from, and how long have you been growing this thing?
1: Um, My name is David Dowdy. I'm from Minford, Ohio, or Mule Town, if any of you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 and what was else? How long have I been growing How this? How
0: long have I been growing this thing? Um,
1: I've been growing this along with my dad, who is in the third row. Hi, dad. Yeah.
0: Everyone say hi, We've dad. There been been uh,
1: For a year and a half, and we're not quitting until the Obama st- administration's over. So we're,
0: we're
1: letting wow. It go. Wow. Bless you, brother. There we go. Okay. <laughs> what, what, really, that's why Obama caused you to grow your beard? No, absolutely not. That just is a good stopping point. It's like, <laughs> okay. it's like three years, and it's still not going to come off, it just might get trimmed. How long does it take in the morning, really? Like, do you comb it? I uh, I shampoo and condition it every day, and then I comb it out when I'm done. You spend
0: more on shampoo and conditioner for your face than I do for my hair. Likewise. Okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you like
1: to do. Uh, Hobbies, interests. I, I I like to play the drums. You love to play the drums. And, um... I don't know. I'd like to hang out with my new niece that's here this new evening niece. for the first sermon ever. I'm going to preach. Yeah, Natalie. she's going to hear. Her. Yeah, that's going to be cool. So, yeah, that's about all I got. All you I got. Hang out with my girlfriend. That's okay.
0: It. Now, um, so drumming. Tell me who who is the most influ- influential female pop singer in the past 10 years to ever influence you on the drums. Katy Perry. Katy Perry? That's not a joke. <laughs> she's <laughs> such a good singer. Kelly Clarkson beat be any day. Yo. Yeah. Know, okay. So, and more also importantly, food. What's your, what's your favorite restaurant to eat at?
1: Um, China Walk in Wheelersburg. You do not
0: get a hint, do you? Penn Station. There you go. Okay, good. How did I forget? How could you forget? Now,
1: David, tell us a little bit specifically about your role on our leadership team. Uh, I'm an associate pastor. Uh, that means that I have to come up here and try to teach you guys something on a semi-regular basis. Um, and I lead a small group here at Rev. Um, we meet on Sunday nights after church is over, and I'll buy pizza for everyone if you guys want to come, if you don't have a small group already. And um, I'm down to hang out or talk to anyone that wants to talk about Jesus or just wants to another friend or whatever. That's what I do here.
0: Okay, and it's really cool, Dave. I've had the
1: opportunity of knowing
0: you now for about six, seven years. Mm-hmm. You have Your journey in life is just, it is so cool to see where you were and where you're at. Um, what would you say to yourself at 15 or 16? If you saw your 16-year-old version of yourself now,
1: what would you tell them? Keep it, clean, keep it clean. Get off the computer. Uh, <laughs> stop stop smoking cigarettes and don't cuss so much. That would probably... Okay, but just give us 30 seconds
0: of, of your story in that, you know, yeah, you were not the same person. Yeah, no. and, and so... Kind of, if you can, in 30 seconds or or more, just a little bit,
1: your story and how, what brought you here. Um, I grew up in church, um, but I never really, I knew, I knew it was a good thing, but I never really followed Jesus. And around 17 or 18, I became an atheist, which is why I'm wearing this shirt. Um, and I became an atheist and I, I started hating Christians and I went off to college. I did a bunch of wild, wild stuff that I'm not very proud of. And, um, and then because of some dudes here at Rev really talking to me and then praying for me, um, I came back, to, came back to Jesus and started following him again, and that's, that's why I'm here right now. You had
0: a pretty wicked awesome youth pastor, too, I think. Yeah, Josh was my youth no, pastor for a couple it, was, years. it was really cool to have the, the opportunity to, to leave Dave and, and to be a part of his life and to see where you're at now. It, it's just a, such a joy, and I'm excited to learn from you and the study that you've put in. So your role as your associate pastor, and, and you're going to be teaching on Sunday nights, leading small groups. How, again, and I ask Eric this, and maybe it's the same, but how do you see that tied to the vision of revolution with worship, growth, serve, and, and, and where you specifically fit in there?
1: Um, well, we come here to to get, like, some general teaching and to give a gospel call to everybody and remind you of, like, a lot of the the fundamentals of Christianity, and then we come here mainly to worship as a corporate body, so there's worship, and then all your growth happens whenever you really can start digging deep down into doctrine comes in small groups, and then small groups lead to service, like I preached on a couple of years ago. you know once you 've been transformed by the things that you learn in small group and by worshiping the living God here, it compels you to go out and serve. Um, and, and I've never seen probably an individual so intentionally.
0: With music, use that gift to worship. Like, it's so cool to watch you go. Um, yeah, are you on Twitter at all? A little. You should be like the preaching drummer or something. I don't <laughs> know, at the, as your Twitter handle, whatever. But, um, Dave, how can we be praying for you as you step into this leadership role? Um, and, and what, just, how can we pray for
1: you? Um, you guys can pray for me with, um, that, that God keeps breaking my heart for the people that, that his heart breaks for. Um, because I've, I'm known to be really jaded and, um, and not be as patient or kind as I should be, and especially with the role that I've been put into. I need more of that. So if you guys can pray that I just... my God breaks my heart with the gospel more.
0: So we'll pray for that, that God does that. Um, and final question, and something that's very interesting for me. What can we do to get you... You say you want to wait for Obama. That's fine. But I want to know... If, if we get 100 people that aren't currently in a small group, will you shave your beard? I'll trim it back to a... Uh, no, 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 no. I need, I need full-on razor blade go action. If we get 100, um, out of the already we say, let's say we have 50 people. So an additional 100 people that are in our small groups to what's there, will you shave your beard?
1: I haven't been clean shaven since I was I, That's not the question. 200. Absolutely. 100, I would. 200. I would. No, no.
0: I'm putting a challenge out there. 200 people in our small groups that aren't currently there. That is, in, in my time as a youth pastor, we had this thing called BHAG goal. And it's kind of appropriate. A big, hairy, audacious goal. Okay? Something that if we're going to reach, it had to have God's blessing. There's no way. So 200 people from what we have now in small groups Dave Dowdy shaves his beard. You got my word. Got his word. All right. The word is there. So let's pray for David. Let's pray for that 200 people because I cannot wait to see that. But uh, let's pray for him that God continues to break his heart, and then we're going to let Dave teach us a little bit. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the journey that you've brought David on. And you've seen that journey from the day he was born, and you knew the purpose you had for him, and it's so amazing to see him. Live that out now. Lord, as he teaches us, may we be attentive to the word that you want to speak through him. Thank you for his, his servant-like willing heart to just let you take over and, and be God. Um, I pray for him that you will continually break his heart for the, for the people that, that he's leading and the people that are hard to lead sometimes. Um, that, that he will be reminded uh, of what you've done in his life. And Lord, I I do, I actively pray for 200 people in our small groups, because I'd love to see that face that you gave him, so barren and clean. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for David. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, David Dowdy, guys.
1: What's up, Brad? That was cool. Um, All right, so, like I said, this shirt, like I just told you guys, I used to be an atheist and we're doing apologetics tonight, and we're doing apologetics next week, and then we're going to be taking a break, and then going into the Advent Conspiracy, where we point Christ- uh, Christmas back to Jesus, um, because Jesus is the reason for the season, and you know that's true, because it rhymes, and... Um, <laughs> So that's what we're going to be doing here in a couple of weeks, but, uh, but tonight we're doing apologetics, and I've got a bunch of ground I've got to cover, um, so bear with me. I'm sorry if this is a little bit long, but I'm just going to jump into it. All right, what we're talking about tonight is the moral argument for God's existence, or the argument from morality. It's one of the simplest, and it's also one of the most effective. This is one that rocked me really hard whenever uh, I, was, I was an atheist, and... Um, so what hangs in the balance of this argument, before we really jump into it, is um, morality. Where does, what, what is the uh, origin of morality? Okay? Um, if God exists, there is a standard that we're expected to live by, and our morals aren't just made up by us, but they're actually a standard given from God and that He expects us to follow. Okay? And if God doesn't exist, then all morals are man-made and completely relative to if you want to follow them or not. You can make up your own morality, whatever. Um, so that's what hangs in the balance of this argument. If, if we can prove that um, morals come from God, then we can prove God's existence. And you see what I'm getting at. All right. So this argument focuses um, not so much on science and stuff. We're going to get into a little bit of that. Um, but it focuses more on like what we can observe about um, how people live their lives and what we can observe um, about how... Across the, across the globe, no matter what culture you go to, we all adhere to similar values, or at least the really big ones um, we all agree on. Okay, so uh, the first thing we need to do is we need to appeal to Scripture. And Corey, are you going to fire those up? Um, because if, if whatever I'm saying doesn't come out of the Bible, then it's just my opinion. I need to shut up and get off stage, right? Um, so John seventeen seventeen, Jesus is praying and he says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is the truth. He's, he's talking to God. So God's word is truth. Okay, what's the next one? Psalm 119, 172. Let my tongue sing about your word for all your commands are right. So God's word is truth. And in God's word, there are commands and his commands are always right. Give me the next one. All right, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Okay, so God's word is true. In it, there are commands, morals, and they're always right. And then the Bible is the inspired word of God that tells us if we're living right or if we're living wrong. It condemns us when we're doing wrong and lets us know when we're doing right. So those three lined up show you that morals do come from God. So before we even get into the argument, I don't care about the argument because the Bible teaches that morality comes from God. Okay? So, um, also, sorry, I almost forgot. Um, <laughs> I'm using, just for the record, I'm using really minimal notes this evening. Uh, I had like five pages of notes that I condensed down to one, so either I'm going to crash and burn or this is going to go over well. Um, it's yet to be determined. Uh, Okay, so before we go any further, uh, I want you guys to know that you don't have to follow Jesus in order to be a relatively moral person. Okay, the Bible actually teaches that. So let's see what what, uh, Paul says in Romans. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without ever having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them what they are doing right. Okay, so that's what I mean by across um, every major culture and stuff, like everyone pretty much adheres to the same basic things because God has written his law on everyone's heart just a little bit. So you don't need the Bible, you don't even need to follow Jesus to be a little bit moral. You're still uh, in in fear of damnation because you're not made right through Jesus's, through belief in Jesus's death, but you can be moral. Okay, Um, so... Uh, three definitions we need to we need to go through before we can really start getting into this stuff, because um, we have to define our terms, right? Um, I I've, I've thrown the word moral around a lot. Um, hit me up with them. Morals: standards of behavior or beliefs concerning what is and is not acceptable for one to do. All right, like. Uh, so what, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable? It's totally acceptable for me to walk the sweet 90-year-old lady out to the parking lot after Christ Community's over in the morning. Uh, that's acceptable. It's completely unacceptable for me to cuss her out for causing a 20-car pileup because she can't see over the wheel because she's 90. All right. So you guys see what I'm saying? Um, the second thing that we, need to, that we need to find is objective morality. Okay, this is God's standard. Moral values that are valid and binding whether anyone believes in them or not. Okay? Uh, I'm gonna dumb this down really hard. Um, The moral object, like the objective moral is that one plus one equals two. Okay? You go over here and he says one plus one equals three, four, five, whatever. They're all wrong. They don't have to believe it's true for it to still be true. The standard is still always right. Okay? Follow me on that. The third thing that we need to know is moral relativism the belief that moral values are valid and binding according to an individual's worldview use the math example again, there is no overhanging answer to one plus one. I go here and say, what is it? Two, three, four, whatever. Um, it's all up to the individual. Okay. There is no real right answer. And you can see what kind of dangerous ground you can get into whenever you can make up your own morals because you believe there is no right answer and there is no standard to live by because we're all really wicked deep down. And you may say that you're not, but you're a liar. So like, I know you're wicked right off the bat. Um, so everyone knows that deep down, that they have thoughts and stuff that they don't want anyone to know, and that if there is no real moral standard, you'll do whatever you want to do in your life. You'll cheat people, you'll lie to people, you'll do whatever it takes to get what you want, okay? So that's why it's important that there is a moral standard, and the Bible teaches that there is one. Um, so those are the three definitions. So what is the argument itself? Um, the, argument for, uh, uh, the argument from morality, uh, I use William Lane Craig's. It's a three-point argument. It's really simple. Step one flows into two, flows into three. It's super solid. Um, One, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Three, therefore God exists. I'm done preaching. I'm kidding. Um, Yeah, the joke's not landing. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) All right, so in order to reject three, that God exists all right, you have to reject either one or two, all right, because this this argument, one flows into two, flows into three without any holes in it, so in order to reject the third one, you have to reject either the first or the second one, and here's the problem, everyone, atheist, Muslim, Christian, whatever, agnostic, whatever, agrees that one is true, if God does not exist, there is no standard, okay, everything is just up to you, everyone agrees on that pretty much, and the minority is so small that we're not even going to worry about them tonight. Um, the second, okay, so, so, you're, so you're left with the second one to, to try to to try to argue about. That, okay, do objective morals even exist? That's the one that people try to pick apart, okay? So that's what we're going to be focusing on tonight. Um, a little bit of a roadmap. What we're going to do is I'm going to give you three of the most common arguments against um, objective morals existing, and then we're going to flip it, and we're actually going to go on the offensive, and we're going to attack moral relativism, and then we're going to see what that has to do with Jesus and the gospel and justice and us. But again, there's a lot of things we got to do before I can get into this. Um, Why does this matter? Why do apologetics matter? Okay. Like I know that that's like a huge question for a lot of people. Um, Apologetics matter for two reasons. Um, One, evangelism. Okay. Everything we do as Christians should be means to an end. Apologetics is not an end in and of itself. Everything should be a means to an end, and that end is telling people about Jesus, okay? And apologetics are important because if you meet someone that doesn't even believe God exists, how are you going to tell them that Jesus is God? You have to use apologetics and open up their mind to the possibility of just a God existing, and then you can point that and pinpoint, focus it on Jesus Christ, but you have to open that door with apologetics first just to get them to believe that God in general exists, Okay? And the second thing is edification, okay? To edify means to strengthen and build up and encourage, right? To, like, solidify, okay? Um, if you've never been through a season of doubt, um, whether or not you like, you, like, you doubt God's existence, you'll go through it eventually at some point. Something bad will happen to you or someone you love, and it will happen. And it's important to know apologetics at that point because it's, a, it's important to know apologetics at that point, um, So that you can remind yourself, I have good reason to believe that Jesus is the son of God. I have good reason to believe that God exists. Okay, and then you can go to someone else and edify them and tell them, hey man, don't forget about this stuff. We know that God exists. Don't slip into that doubt and then quit following Jesus. And once again, it's just a means to an end. You solidify yourself, you feel rock solid in what you believe, you're more confident to go out and tell people about Jesus. So everything's just a means to that end. All right, So the first major argument that people will throw out to you is they'll say um, morals come from natural selection, and it's called the herd instinct. And what that is is that over time, it's for the best of our species that we start start agreeing to not kill each other, and we start agreeing to not rape each other and stuff like that. So that's how morals came about. It's just natural selection. It's just what's for the best of our species. It's what's for the best of us as a human race to, to keep living. Um, But there's some problems with that. Uh, The first one, for those of you who don't know about natural selection, um, natural selection is only concerned with two things. The individual's survival, not the species, and passing on your own genetics. Okay? Um, And that flies in the face of of the argument that it's for the best of the species. Which, just real quick, I think uh, that would kind of be a sweet gig, right? Like if God didn't exist, you just survive and spread your genetics. (laughs) But God does exist, and he's called us to more than that, and I'm depraved. Um, Anyway, all right, so one of the biggest problems is that that natural selection is only concerned about the individual. Morals are more often than not concerned about other people. That flies right in the face of of natural selection and the idea of a herd instinct. Um, The second thing is that often morals require us to be self-sacrificial. Right, like if I see a homeless dude on the street and I give him ten bucks to go get some food, or I go buy him some food, that's five or ten bucks that I could have put in my bank account to secure my family's future and to secure my survival, right? So that I can eat. But instead, I deny myself and give him money so that he can eat. Um, that's that. Once again, I just keep saying the word over and over. That flies in the face of natural selection. I'm jeopardizing my future in order to help him. Natural selection is the survival of the fittest. According to that, I should just, there should be no moral telling me to help him. I should let him die. If he starves to death, big deal. He made bad decisions. He wasn't smart enough. His genetics don't deserve to go on. Um, but that's not how morals work, obviously. Um, and the third thing um, that I have a problem with the herd instinct idea is um, whenever we have to make a moral decision there's an internal dialogue that goes on within us, right? Like you see a dude drowning in the river or whatever, and you're like, oh, do I jump in? Do I, uh, He could drown me. I, we both might die. Um, I might live, and he might die anyways. I could save him, and then he ends up killing me for some reason. Like, I don't know. Which, if your internal debate takes that long, he's probably going to drown anyways. <laughs> um. So, like, it may just be a split second, but there is some kind of, like, debate that you have, right? It may not take that long, but there is, like, a, oh, what do I do? That's not an instinct. Animals just act, right? And there is an internal dialogue that we go through, and we're not, it just doesn't, it just doesn't match up, okay? So that, that's the herd instinct, so we've one up, one down. Um, the second thing that people will throw up to you is they'll say, there's no evidence that objective morals exist. I need evidence in order to believe that they exist. And you can have a lot of fun with this one, Uh, especially if you're friends with the person, you know they won't get mad at you or whatever, like you can have a ton of fun with this. Um, We're actually gonna have some notes up here for this one. Um, So follow me along. If you need evidence to believe something exists, and I tell you, well, I can observe that people live morally, and I can observe that across cultures, we all abide by generally the same big morals. Um, I can observe those things. That's my evidence. Some people will say, well, that's not good enough. That's really not evidence. That's just your observation. Where's the kicker? Um, In science, like all that science is, is observing the world around us, conducting experiments based on those observations and arriving at conclusions. Right? Like gravity, like we observe stuff falls to the ground. If you say my observations aren't good enough or your observations aren't good enough, then you're left with nothing. Then you can know if nothing really exists, let alone morals. It's nothing. Like, I know this exists because I can observe it. I can pick it up. I can feel it. I can touch it. I could taste it if I wanted to. I don't know. Um, I don't don't eat anymore. I don't know. Um, So your observations are all you really have. Okay? Uh, And if you deny the observations are good enough to believe that something exists, then you can slip into this thing called solipsism. Okay, this is hilarious. Uh, it's, it's like some philosophers are so smart, they're stupid, and they come into this. Is it up there? The view or theory that the self is all that can be known to exist. If solipsism is true, like if I can't trust that like, my observations are good enough, I'm making every one of you up right now. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, no, I, like my body doesn't even exist. All I can know for sure is my mind exists. This is wild. Um, like I could be a brain in a tank somewhere. Or, like, this could all be the matrix, and, like, you just need to grow up at that point. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, grow up, Neo. Um, So, like, that's just crazy. Okay, so, like, we can trust our observations. Uh, A a good quote from um, William Lane Craig is he says, uh, he's he's a philosopher. I truly, truly hope you guys will check him out. Really smart dude, way smarter than me. He says, um... I have no good reason to deny what I... Oh, I can trust what I um, can observe because I have no good reason to deny what I can clearly perceive. If you know you're sane and you observe something, you have no good reason to deny what you just observed, right? So you guys are following me on that. All right, so that that one's just a lot of fun. Uh, Don't be a jerk about it, though. Um, But that is really fun to me. Um, The third one people will say is uh, morals are just culturally derived, okay? Like the culture makes the moral not God, um my problem with that is okay let's say your culture makes a moral and we have like some moral disagreement right like about like some smaller things um that doesn't nullify moral truths does that make sense like if there's moral disagreements because like you can see that cultures disagree and that morals are just based on cultures like okay we disagree on on something moral like a smaller thing um that doesn't nullify the fact that there is in fact truth to be found Right Like if me and Caleb disagree on whatever um it it we, both of us could be wrong, one of us could be wrong, the other one could be right, but there is a right answer, okay, do you follow me on that and uh, something else to consider with the with the cultural thing, and this one hit me really hard uh, a man named Tim Keller, we talk about him a lot. You guys should read some of his books. he's a killer, killer, preacher, and theologian um he He throws this up, he says, okay, um, if morals are just culturally derived and not from God um What happens whenever your culture drastically changes? Okay? Like, uh, for example, if uh, the Nazis would have won World War II, does that all of a sudden make um, homophobia and genocide and racism and infanticide and the slaughter of the elderly and sick and ageism and all that, does all of a sudden that make that okay? I would say no, unless you're like a homicidal, like, psychopath. Like, Absolutely not. Moral, like, culture doesn't dictate the morals. That just means your culture is morally bankrupt and that, that they need the truth and they need to seek out the truth. So the culture doesn't dictate, might doesn't make right with morals. Okay, there is a standard. So that's my problem with the cultural argument is if your culture, if your culture changes, it doesn't mean that it's right. It just means that the majority of people are morally bankrupt. So, we've, we've had three up and three down on the arguments, and now we're going to switch gears and we're going to go to attack mode. Um, I want you guys to remember this, though. Whenever you do decide to go on the offensive, if you ever do, whenever you're talking to someone about this kind of stuff, don't be a jerk. Because um, if you're a Christian and you're showing no grace and you're just being really rude to these people um, as you're attacking what they believe, which, I mean, you should push back. But uh, if you're doing that with no grace, and then let's say you win the argument. Okay, now you're just a jerk that won an argument, and you showed them no grace, and now you're going to try to tell them about the gospel of Jesus that is nothing but grace. They're not going to take you seriously. Okay, so so be careful whenever you start to go on the uh, offensive with this stuff. Um, make sure that it's not an argument, too. Make sure that it's a debate, or it's with a friend, or that things are really chilled out. Okay? Um, the, the first thing, once again, everything is based on threes for me tonight. Like, I got th- three points for this. Um, the first one is if you oppress a moral relativist, you'll find out really quick that they're not really a relativist. All right? Like, uh, William Lane Craig has a story, and uh, it's about this uh, this kid. All right? He's in this uh, college class, and his professor gives him um, criteria for a paper. You know what I mean? gives him all that and says, write a paper on either objective morality or relative morality. Okay? Um, here's the criteria, follow the criteria, you'll get a good grade. And then they all turn their stuff in. And this kid, one kid writes a paper on, um, relative morality. He turns it in a blue folder and hands it in. And, um, it comes time to get their, their papers back and professor gives it back. And he failed the kid that gave him the blue folder that wrote on moral relativity. And the kid comes up to him and says, why did you do that? He's like, I followed all the criteria that you told me to follow. And you gave me an F. He's like, oh, well, you turn it in a blue folder, and I really hate blue, so I gave you an F. And the kid was like, well, that's not fair. And he's like, wait, hold on. Did you say that's not fair? And the kid was like, yeah. And he said, the kid that wrote a paper on moral, rel- or yeah, eh, relative morality just told me that something's not fair. There is no standard if morals are relative, so he could do what he wanted. And the kid was like, oh, and then he took the thing back and gave him an A and was like, ah, but you, I'm not. I'm an objective moralist. Um, so, like, you see what I'm saying? If, if there, there is no standard, you can do what you want. But if you take someone who claims that they're a moral relativist and you oppress them and you do something unfair to them, they'll cry out that they want fairness, that they want justice, right? They just want to be able to do what they want to do, but they don't want you to do to them whatever you want to do, all right? So you'll find out real quick that no one's really a moral relativist if you oppress them. Um, the second thing is, um, I personally think often, more often than not, moral relativists, um, deny God's morality because they want to do what they want, period. It's not really that they don't like believe God doesn't exist and that there is no standard because of that. Like they really, like they may to some degree believe that God exists because you can be a moral relativist and not be an atheist. Um, People are moral relativists because they want to do what they want to do. Like it's a lot easier to, um, you know, be promiscuous and do drugs and go out and party and cheat people out of money and lie to everyone and steal from people or whatever, just be a jerk. And then lay your head down at night saying, yeah, but there really is no standard and I have no one to answer to. It's a lot easier to do that than to live a day and do all that stuff that you know you shouldn't do. And then lay your head down at night and say, yeah, there's a standard and I'm going to have to answer to it one day. Um, so, I, I would argue that most moral relativists, they're, they're not really moral relativists. They just don't want to feel guilty for what they're doing. Right? Like, they just want to deny the standard, and, and they, don't, they don't really believe there's not a standard. They just want to deny it so that they can do whatever they want. Um, and the third thing, and I'm going to wrap it up with this, and I'll get out of your guys' face. Um, to deny objective morality is to deny that there is a standard. And if you deny that there is a standard that we're supposed to live by, then you can't call anything good or evil. You can't call anything fair or unfair. You can't call anything right or wrong. Which sounds kind of sweet at first, like you can do whatever you want, like we've talked about. Um, But whenever you really get down to it, um, you have to deny your humanity in order to do that. Here's what I mean. Um, You know, I don't know how many of you guys read the Portsmouth Daily Times. I work at a convenience store, so I get that all the time, read it every day. Um, you can see rape and child molestation and murder and women selling their bodies for drugs and uh, drug deals gone wrong. And you can read about people getting busted for drugs because they were born into a bad environment and it pushed them into uh, dealing or whatever. And you, you can see that those things are all evil. I, I'll, I'll take it one notch further if, if that's not enough for you guys. Um, I work with a woman, and uh, she had a grandson, and I say had because he died. He was eight or nine months old, I think, and they they brought him home his parents and his parents were drug addicts, and they brought him home in his car seat, and they put him in his room, and they go to the living room or wherever, and they do drugs, and for the next three days they 're in and out of the house doing whatever they wanted to do, getting high, staying high. And then, finally, one of the family members comes around and is looking for the kid, and they find the child, purple, with rigor mortis set in, still in his car seat in his room. Now, if you hear that, and you want to tell me that you just don't like that that happened, but that that's not evil, you're not a human being. Everything in your whole being cries out that that is wicked, that is evil. But if there is no standard, all you can say is, I really don't like that that happened. But those parents aren't wicked because wickedness doesn't exist. So if you're willing to deny everything that your heart's telling you, if you're willing to deny your entire humanity, go on ahead. But you know you're lying to yourself. Okay, so, so whenever, we, whenever we know that, that there are uh, a standard of morals, Okay then we know that good and evil exists. And if we know good and evil exist, it's a moral code. And if someone breaks that moral code by doing something wicked like those parents did to that defenseless kid, all right, whenever they break that code and do something like that, we want something done, right? That they deserve to be punished. They need to be punished. What we're crying out for whenever we say something has to be done for them breaking that code is justice, all right? We want justice done. That's why we have a justice system. So why do we want justice? What does this whole argument have to do with God? What does it have to do with Jesus? We want justice for one reason. We want justice because God, it says in Genesis, he made us image bearers. Okay? We were made in the likeness of God. We were made in the image of God. That doesn't mean that we look like God, but that means that we bear some of his characteristics. Okay, and one of the central characteristics about God, in my opinion, he has two central characteristics. The first one is justice. Okay, the Bible throughout says that he's a God of justice, and that whenever you sin or anything, or, 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 or sin is to rebel against God, and whenever you sin, the scales tip against your favor, and God says justice must be served. Just like whenever someone breaks a law, we demand that justice be done. We want justice done to those kids' parents, to that kid's parents. Okay? But he's also a God of mercy. And here's the thing about that you can't have mercy if you don't have justice. If there's not uh, punishment looming for breaking a law, then you can't have mercy that someone can say, yeah, but we're not going to punish you for that. Okay? But justice must be served because the Bible says that God is absolutely obsessed with justice. Okay? Because he is the embodiment of justice. So what does that have to do with Jesus? All right, we sin, and that tips the scale, right? And God has every right to damn every one of us. As soon as we sin, God has, and we're born sinners anyways. So, so God has the right to damn us all, split second, because the, uh, sin deserves damnation, and sin deserves death. Okay, so, so what does God do? He says, no, I'm a merciful God, though. So I don't want to damn the entire human race for their sin. But I demand justice, just like we demand justice. So what does he do? He says, okay, something has to set these scales back to even. And they can't obey my law. They keep breaking my law. They keep breaking my standard of morals that I expect them to live by. So what he does is he sends himself in the form of Jesus to earth to live out those morals, to live out that law, to live out that standard perfectly and never mess up, never, ever miss the mark on that. And then Jesus, because he lived a perfect life, did not deserve to die. He didn't deserve damnation. He didn't deserve hell. He didn't deserve death. But what does he do? He says the scales must hit even. Someone must pay for sin because God demands justice for sin. So Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus offers himself up on the cross so that God can pour out all of his wrath and justice for our sin on Jesus. And then he says, now, if you place your faith in Jesus's death, setting the scales back to even for you, because God won't charge you twice for the same crime, because that would be unjust. Jesus paid for your sin. He paid your justice if you put your faith in him. So you won't have to pay for it again when you die. God, that would be completely unjust. And that's not God's characteristic. So here are your two options you put your faith in Jesus and Jesus sets the scales equal for you or you die and you are damned and sent to hell and then that scales get set even that way. Those are the two options that Jesus gives you. He says, look, I've paid for it and I'll pay for yours or you'll pay for yours, but either way it's getting paid because I demand justice. The scales will hit even, period. That's the gospel. That's what this has to do with Jesus. We demand justice because God has given us morals. Morals lead us to want justice done. And Jesus took our justice on the cross in our place, on our behalf. And I, I beg you guys, if you, if, you don't, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, please, please do. Because like I said, you, you don't want to stand in front of God and owe him justice. You don't want to. You want to be able to stand there and have Jesus stand in between you and God and say, "No, I paid for that. Everything He did, I paid for that." You don't want. To, you don't want to be standing there with no defense and no advocate and nothing between you and God. You don't want to pay the penalty for sin, especially whenever Jesus already paid it for you. You know, and after we're done, after we're done playing up here tonight, which we're going to do here in a minute. Um, if any of you guys want to know what that means, if any of you guys want to know what it means to put your faith in Jesus, if any of you guys want to know what it, what it means that Jesus set the scales, even for you, even further than I explained it tonight. Anyone who has been on this stage tonight and anyone who will be on this stage tonight, come find one of us. Please find me. I have nothing to do this evening. I will talk to you. Let's pray. Um, father, thank you so much. Um for the fact that your son um, paid our justice for us, God. Uh, thank you so much that, that we don't have to stand before you uh, defenseless and that we don't have to stand before you fearing your judgment and your justice for our sin. God, thank you so much for that, Father. Um, thank you for your, for your moral standard that you expect us to live by, God, because that's the right way to live. God, thank you so much for that, God. You've you've told us how you want us to live, and you've told us that it's for our benefit in the Scripture. God, but you know that we're not going to hit that standard, and that's why you sent Jesus. And I thank you so much for that, God. I I pray that anyone here that doesn't know you come to faith in you. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit open their eyes and open their ears and soften their heart, God. Father, we're going to worship you. God, I thank you so much for everything you've done and everything you're going to do in this church and in these people. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.